in Colossians 1, 9 through 12, where we've been, you will recall that Paul has been telling the Colossians about the substance of the prayer which he and Timothy have been making for them ever since the day they first heard of the Colossians' sincere conversion to God, evidenced by their faith uh, in Christ Jesus and their love toward all the saints. And they have been asking God to fill the Colossians with a comprehensive knowledge of his revealed will, not merely a notion in their minds or just a doctrine in their minds, but a spiritual understanding and wise application of that will. And the purpose behind this filling for which they were praying was uh, not that they would be puffed up in their minds, but that the Colossians would please God in all things by living their lives in a way honoring to the Lord. And uh, they described this God-honoring way of life uh, with four uh, particular uh, items or specifics. First of all, uh, a general holiness bearing fruit unto every good work. Secondly, an increase in the knowledge of God himself that would, of course, further deepen their relationship with him and their sincerity of heart being increased in the knowledge of God, the text has it. And thirdly, a joyful submission to tribulation, remaining steadfast in clinging to God and his truth and his promises and staying far away from wrath and anger and this as the result of a divine strengthening worked upon them, which was consistent with and proportional to the power which emanates from God's glory, being strengthened with all strength according to the power of his glory, unto all patience and long-suffering with joy. Each one of these three things was part of that God-honoring walk which would please God, that Paul and Timothy sought for them to have. Each one of these things, uh, in part at least, secured by their being filled with the knowledge of God's revealed will. And at this point, we come to the fourth item in verse 12 and uh, verse 13. This is the fourth part of our God-honoring way of life, the fourth thing that pleases God when men live so, the fourth thing secured by the divine filling with the knowledge of his revealed will. And that thing, put simply, is thankfulness. Thankfulness to God, to the Father. And in this case, it is not only thankfulness generally, but it has a particular regard to certain things God has graciously done in us and upon us and for us. And that is what we want to begin looking at today. Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Giving thanks, this is in the AV, I'll read. Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Thanksgiving, then, the fourth part 
of the God-honoring walk. Giving thanks to the Father, the text begins, just as holiness is a way of life, a way of walking, just as steadfastness and patience in tribulation are a way of life, a way of walking that constantly should characterize the Christian, so thankfulness is to be a way of life or a way of walking for the child of God. Now, I want to make several uh, general points from the scriptures about uh, the nature of this thankfulness. And then we'll get to the specific idea uh, here in this uh, text. First of all, thankfulness is obligatory. It is necessary. It is required of men. <coughs> 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, I don't think there could be a plainer statement that could be made of the obligatory, necessary nature of thanksgiving. And it is universal thankfulness as well. In everything, give thanks. Now, we said that this thankfulness, like all of the other three items, was secured by the knowledge of the divine will. Well, here is the divine will set forth for us in very express and clear terms. It is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, that in everything you should give thanks. <clears throat> thankfulness obligatory. Secondly, thankfulness is the way of Christ and the way of living in Christ. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Now, here is an interesting parallel uh, to, the, to, the, uh, to the prayer that we have, only this one is an exhortation. We're talking about the way of life. As you've received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. We have the way of life set forth. And, and what, is, what is the way of life, the way of walking in Christ? Well, it's to be rooted and built up in him, growing in the knowledge of God, if you will. It's to be established in the faith, as you've been taught, must have true doctrine, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So these three items crop up again as central, uh, rooted and built up in Christ, established in the doctrines of the faith, as you've been taught, and abounding in thanksgiving, abundant thanksgiving. And now before, the last verse we looked at there in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it was the extent that was emphasized. In everything give thanks. Now it's the amount, abounding in thanksgiving. And it's interesting that we'll see that these things are what help to protect against being spoiled through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men and the rudiments of the world and not after Christ, as the next verse goes on. 
So thankfulness is the way of living in Christ. Not surprisingly, if that is true, the scriptures also hold forth that thanksgiving is part of a spirit-filled life, or perhaps even contributes to obtaining a spirit-filled life. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And then these next three items can either be considered as describing the kind of life that characterizes a person filled by the Spirit, or are part of the way to being filled with the Spirit. So, three items. Be filled with the Spirit. First of all, speaking to yourselves. In Psalm, that's to one another, I think, not to yourself, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. That's the first item. Secondly, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second thing. And the third thing, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So this is at least... uh, characteristic of a life filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual uh, songs, submitting to one another in the fear of God, and giving thanks always for all things. Again, universal, uh, constant thankfulness, part of the Spirit-filled life. Fourthly, thanksgiving, like blessing, is the right use of the tongue. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. Thanksgiving, like blessing, is the right use of the tongue. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting. That's not the right use of the tongue, but rather giving of thanks. Thanksgiving is the right use of the tongue. So four things so far. It is uh, thanksgiving is necessary. Thankfulness is the way of living in Christ. Uh, Thankfulness is part of the spirit-filled life. And thanksgiving is the right use of the tongue. Then there's the fifth item held forth in scriptures with regard to thanksgiving. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, which you will, I hope, remember. Uh, Thanksgiving in prayer is to replace anxiety and is the way to divine contentment. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So the fifth item, thanksgiving in prayer, replaces anxiety and is the way to divine contentment. Sixthly, unthankfulness is sin and brings guilt and leads to further sin and eventually to apostasy and judicial hardening. Romans, fascinating passage, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, or going back a bit to verse 20, 
For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. This verse essentially sets forth the failure of the people it's talking about to worship God when they knew they ought to, that that failure to worship God when they knew they ought to was the fountainhead of sin and apostasy that led to eventually their being uh, given up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to judicial hardening and to idolatry and to apostasy. So that, uh, uh, and, and these words, glorifying and giving thanks to God, are words that describe the worship of God. Uh, that is the essence of worship, to glorify him and to give thanks to him. As I'll remind you that we considered before the word, very word for being <coughs> thankful. Eucharisteo is used uh, almost exclusively of, a, of divine worship. So, unthankfulness is a sin. Unthankfulness is a sin for everyone uh, and brings guilt and leads to further sin and apostasy and judicial hardening. Uh, in short, Colossians 3.17, we are told, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. And now the uh, the reason I wanted to do that little survey uh, was simply to stress this point in its context, uh, which is that thanksgiving is a main essential characteristic of a God-honoring, God-pleasing way of life and is fully revealed to be a part of the divine will. How important and how vital. Just as without holiness no man shall see the Lord, so those who lack thankfulness are found guilty and shameful to the Lord. This thankfulness is directed to the Father. It says giving thanks to the Father. Uh, thankfulness is a form of divine worship. We considered this in our sermon on Colossians 1.3. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ praying for you. And I'll just remind you that of the 50-something usages of the word, I think it was 55 of this word, Eucharisteo, all but two are directly addressed to God. And the two exceptions are the kinds of exceptions that prove the rule, both of them being a kind of hyperbole, uh, hyperbolic praise for another person uh, that, that borrows from the fact that Eucharisteo is a form of divine uh, praise. This type of thanksgiving is, is directed towards God because he alone is the author of all good. Thanksgiving is an act of worship. And to give thanks to another in this way, to give thanks to, to someone other than God, in, than the true God in this way, is, is all the same with praying to someone other than the true God, serving to someone other than the true God, in the place of the true 
and living God. It's to it's to serve another God, to 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 give this kind of praise and thanksgiving to another is to worship another. So it must be directed unto God. And so it is here giving thanks to the father. Now, before we go on, I want to make uh, two two applications uh, just from this information so far. The point of the text, of course, is to hold forth thankfulness as a vital element in a God-honoring walk. And just as sin and ignorance and murmuring and wrathfulness are all shameful things in those who profess the gospel, as we've learned so far. Not to have a knowledge of God when you profess God is shameful. Uh, to, to walk in sin instead of holiness when you profess God is shameful. To, to murmur and be full of wrath instead of being patient and long-suffering when you profess the name of God is shameful. Just as all those things are shameful, so also is unthankfulness shameful in all of those that profess the gospel. I think that we, we don't really realize and understand what a major and abominable sin this is held forth to be in the scriptures, positively and negatively. Negatively in Romans chapter 1, for one place, as we were looking there. Positively by being connected, by being held forth repeatedly as a <coughs> fundamental element in Christian life as much as believing true doctrine. So is being thankful to God important. Unthankfulness strikes at the heart of loving and worshiping and serving God. It, it throws God's works back in his face with an insult, saying that they're not good enough for us. It is akin to refusing to worship God. In fact, it is refusing to worship God. <coughs> it, it, uh, it overthrows high-handedly the creator and creature relationship and sets the unthankful person up as the judge over the Almighty and the works of the Almighty. And so if, it, if it's all of these things, if it's a complete reversal if it's a throwing back in God's faith of his works, if it's a refusing to worship God in truth, we can see how it leads to apostasy and to becoming a God-hater. These are strong words, but I think that they are all supported by the scriptures that we've just considered so far. We are accustomed to thinking of blasphemy and murder as great and terrible sins. But do we realize the depth of this sin and how fully it stains and adheres to each one of us? None of us are naturally born into the world giving thanks to God. But what a demonstration of gospel sincerity true thankfulness is. And we have, I think, a special reason to beware of this sin because, of course, the opposite mindset of unthankfulness, just like covetousness, is ingrained into the culture of our day. It is a prevailing, reigning sin in, this, in, in our 
culture. And when such a thing already has such a strong foothold in our own hearts, is also universally endorsed by our surroundings, we must have very great conviction and very uh, sincere care if we are to, by grace, prevail over it. But let us also remember that thanksgiving is a blessing of God's grace, which is secured by our being filled with the knowledge of the divine will. This is, in part, why many people have difficult thankfulness, because they are not accustomed to thinking and considering and reflecting on the blessings of God as revealed in the word and as evident in our lives, which he pours out upon us. First of all, of course, it is, it is uh, secured by his, by his will by simply being revealed as a duty, by a commandment. But he also reveals himself and his works, and that provides us the motive and the ground. As a creator, we owe to him our very life and being. And what of all the good which he does, sending even the rain and sunshine to sustain life and creation? We are totally dependent upon him. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. He sustains our lives. And what about when he reveals himself as a merciful God? And when he freely adopts us to be his children, who were aliens and strangers and wicked, wicked orphans. And when he freely gives us Christ and gives us all things in him. And when he pours out his blessings so that we receive grace upon grace. And when he promises all things to work together for good to us. What grosser, what more heinous a sin could be imagined than to cast all of this back in his face by unthankfulness because we are not satisfied with a few minutiae of our circumstances which were also ordained entirely by him. And what more fitted to secure this grace than these revelations of himself and his work when blessed by the Spirit. It is a frequent practice uh, I think especially we see it revealed in the Psalms that inspires one to thankfulness to reflect upon the works of God uh, for us in the past. Too often we uh, live moment to moment and we do not think of the promises held forth to us in the future or of God's revelation of his faithfulness to us in the past in all that he has done, we think only of the troubles of the moment uh, and those things which dissatisfy us. And so we fall into murmuring and unthankfulness. And then we cannot approach God with love and sincerity of heart. And we are hardened in our relationship with him. As the apostle continues, he sets forth uh, as I was saying, specific things that he is concerned with here for which they are to be thankful to God. It is not merely general thankfulness that he has in mind, but especially with regard to certain things. And these are things uh, revealed in verses, second half of verse 12 and verse, thing, verse 13, 
that center around God's transforming work in his people. And we're going to look at the first one today. The text reads, giving thanks to the Father, the one who has made us fit for the share of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So the first respect in which this thanksgiving is made regards his fitting us for the heavenly inheritance. So mind you, it is not thanksgiving with respect to the fact that we have a heavenly inheritance. That's not what the text says. It is thanksgiving with respect to the fact that God has made us fit for the heavenly inheritance. This word is variously translated in the scriptural usages of it as sufficient, worthy, meet, or fit. It implies, of course, that there was some defect, some deficiency, some problem. Something had to be done to these Colossians or for these Colossians. They were not fit for this inheritance. They were not sufficient to receive it. They were not meet to partake of it. It was not theirs, in fact. They could not receive it. They were disqualified, cut off, removed from the will, if you will. But things did not remain this way. They became meat. They became fit. They became sufficient and, in a sense, worthy. But this was not by something that they did. It was not by their strivings or their workings or their law keepings. It was something done sovereignly and completely by God himself according to his good pleasure. It was an act of free grace. God did that to them which made them fit, which fitted them for this inheritance. And that is why they were especially to give thanks. They were to give thanks because God had poured out his free grace upon them who were unfit for the inheritance and transformed them to be fit for the inheritance. And we'll see why they had to be transformed. It's because of the nature of the inheritance compared with who they were. The language that describes the inheritance here is called a share in the inheritance. This was before <coughs> described as the hope laid up for them in the heavens. There are two words of importance here. There is the word, the second word, that we've translated inheritance. This is what they were fitted for. The word means literally, in, in almost all, it's only used probably eight times or so, and all, about five of those are translated the lot. It's the lot, not a lot, the lot, like you cast a lot. And, and, and by extension, it means something, uh, something that is apportioned or divided by the use of the lot. Now, how did this come to signify the concept of inheritance? Well, the second word, before I get into that, or the, the first word, rather, uh, means a share, a portion, or a part. So if you put these things together, they mean uh, they were fitted for their share in that thing which is divided by the lot. Now, this is a reference to the fulfillment of that which was typical in the Abrahamic covenant promise of land to Israel. The inheritance, physically speaking, their inheritance, the inheritance of the Jews, physically speaking, from the Lord, 
was divided by lot among the tribes and families of Israel after the entrance into the promised land, after redemption from bondage in Egypt. Each tribe was given a portion and each uh, each family then within the, each tribe was given a portion of the land that, and that was determined by the use of the lot. And so that was their inheritance. And this, that which is divided by the lot, a share in that which is divided by the lot is a direct, through imagery, a direct reference to the entry of Israel into the land and the division of that inheritance into shares and portions by the use of the lot. Now, I wish to consider for a moment this marvelous typical imagery. Remember that the old covenant land promise typified the uh, the eternal inheritance, the eternal rest. How did this work? God promised to Abraham and to his physical seed a land, didn't he? An earthly inheritance. This was a promise of grace. Israel did nothing to deserve the land. God denies that. He says, you were nothing before I found you. God called them sovereignly, chose them from all of the other nations, and he fitted them for the land that they were to inherit. Before they could enter into the land, there was a problem. They had to be delivered from bondage to a foreign power that was hostile to the Lord. And God delivered them from Egypt and led them by his personal presence out of bondage and into a rich land of promise. And this land was prepared for them already by the Lord. What he had done, what had he done? He had allowed the Canaanites to become very rich and very wealthy, to build up dwellings, to cultivate the land, so that there were cultivated fields, there were there were dwelling houses, there was there was richness and fatness in the land, dripping with milk and honey. It was prepared for them already when they arrived to it. And they were fitted for it. And each received his share in the inheritance when they arrived. But this is all a picture. Abraham's seed is Christ. And those in Christ are the true seed of Abraham. God's spiritual elect are promised an inheritance. This, of course, is all of grace. They did nothing to deserve it. They did nothing to obtain it. They did nothing to merit it. They couldn't. God found them, if you will, his people, his elect, his spiritual elect, at enmity with him. They are nothing, unworthy. And God sovereignly, of his own grace and mercy and free will, chooses them, calls them, promises them an inheritance, calls them by his gospel and fits them for this inheritance, and he even delivers them from bondage to a foreign power. Verse 13, who has delivered us 
from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And when we're translated into the kingdom of his dear son, the inheritance belongs to Christ. And so we become the seed of Abraham by being Christ in Christ, who is the seed of Abraham. And so we obtain the inheritance. And this, and he conducts his people by his spiritual presence to the heavenly land of promise. And it is a place which is prepared beforehand by Christ. He promised so. I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. And so that each one, as they arrive, can receive his share in the heavenly inheritance. And so God's covenant with Abraham and his seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, receives its final spiritual true fulfillment. <clears throat> so the the inheritance uh, he's 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 made them fit to receive their share of the inheritance. Now this inheritance is described with two further little prepositional phrases. It is called an inheritance in the light. The share of the inheritance of the saints in the light. What does this mean? Let me just take you gradually through several verses. I'm not going to comment. I'm just going to read them. They lead naturally from one to the nut to another. So if you'll listen closely, I think you'll hear the progression. First John 1, verses 5 through 7. This, and we're talking about why is the inheritance called the inheritance of the saints in the light? Why in the light? This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. God is light. He is in the light. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another and we're cleansed from sin. Now, John 1, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. An extended passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God is light. Jesus is the light. And when we behold the light, we behold the glory. John chapter 3. 
verse 14 and after. And as Moses Christ speaking, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Continuing, John chapter 8, verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The book of Revelation, first in chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Okay, new heaven and new earth. And John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, neither crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. New Jerusalem, new heavens and earth. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And what is part of the description? Verse 22. And I saw no temple, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Revelation 22, verse 1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of his Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. It is the inheritance of the saints in the light. Heaven the inheritance is light because Christ is light, because God is light. And light is holiness, and light is glory, and light is revealing and manifesting and shines forth his perfections. The inheritance of the saints in the light. I think those verses pretty well explain it. 
Secondly, it is called the inheritance of the saints. They and they only are the children of the light. Ephesians 5.8, children of the light. 1 Thessalonians 5.5, the children of light. And the inheritance is for the children only and not for the strangers. If you have, if you have a great uh, acreage of inheritance that you're going to pass on, you don't pass it on to strangers, you pass it on to your children. And the children of the light receive the inheritance that is in the light. And only they receive it. Revelation 21, 7 and 8. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And verse 25, the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And there shall, but that doesn't mean you can just go in and out as you please. There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles. Either whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, only they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. People can't come up from hell and come into heaven and defile it. Verse chapter 22, verse 14, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For outside are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. The inheritance is for the children of light because it's the inheritance of light, because it's the inheritance of Jesus. It belongs to him, and because he is the seed of Abraham, and only those who are in him and are therefore the seed and children of Abraham have right to a portion of that which is divided by the lot to the true heavenly inheritance. This glorious inheritance, this eternity in the light and with the light and transformed by the light is all of grace. Only those fit can enter into a share. And this fitness is the work of God the Father. And for receiving such a tremendous outpouring of grace, men give thanks. Giving thanks to the Father who's made us fit for, for the share of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And this is honoring and pleasing to God when men give thanks to Him for transforming them into a fitness for that heavenly inheritance. And it is secured by the filling with the knowledge of the divine will. This giving of thanks. Because it holds forth the promises. And that is the text. I said that he has to make us fit for an inheritance of the saints in the light, and that implies that there's some defect, some unfitness. And that is explained in the next clause. Why are we unfit? Because we are in the power of darkness. And that, as we discussed, all falls in with the analogy of the inheritance. Delivered from bondage, from power, from authority, of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a power hostile to God and transformed into another kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of His love. But that's for next week. And I'm going to hold uh, the applications from this until we finish that 
exposition of verse 13 because it all goes together. So this much then uh, for this week. Next week we consider uh, the transformation itself. What is this uh, fitness for the inheritance? What does it entail?